Welcome to my podcast and today I'm sitting in a large room behind the castle in the castle courtyard and my guest today is an old friend of mine who obviously looks very young, Ranald MacDonald and actually we went to university together so that was I can't tell you how many years ago. We were both at St Andrews University which was the most amazing few years certainly of my life, enormous fun and after that Ranald went to London and he set up a restaurant business called Boysdale's and when I returned to London I ended up training as a chartered accountant and miraculously passing all my exams in the end. Welcome, Randall. Thank you so much for joining me. And I know that I loved St Andrews University, but I lived in London, so it was an entire contrast. But what were your years like at university in St Andrews? I, I loved St Andrews, and we had a lot of fun together. And um, That sounds bad. But it's true. But I think I'm, I'm, I slightly regret not going to a bigger city university and immersing myself more in the real world, because it was quite a a cushioned, world cocooned apart. world at St Andrews. It was small and intimate and very friendly and very easy. It didn't involve many challenges apart from the work itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was the opposite because I went to school in London. So for me, it was a joy to go to university, which I deliberately chose, somewhere entirely different with a backdrop of Scotland to explore in holidays and to drive round. I find the scenery of Scotland completely magical and I'm forever grateful for the time I managed to spend up there. I also applied to Edinburgh and Aberdeen where I both also got places. Edinburgh, so I have a son who's just finished at Edinburgh. Edinburgh looked like a lot of fun. We also went, we obviously went to Edinburgh a few times, didn't we? And there were lots of parties and it's a much, it's, it's obviously a little bit more urban. And I have another son who went to Glasgow who loved Glasgow. But whenever you meet a student today or a young person who's just been through the university process, they tend to be totally and utterly infatuated and in love with the city within which they were at university, whether it's Leeds, Glasgow, Edinburgh or Newcastle. They love the cities that they lived within. And St Andrews was incredibly beautiful, but it was a small, quaint place. And I think of it as the Mayfair of Scotland. I went back there the other day. It's so rich. It's unbelievable really smart shops and restaurants and really smart cafes and little cocktail bars it's it's just very smart well funny enough my number six sister ended up going to st andrews and she studied french and she also loved it but then sadly my mother died as well as my father so we all went up to her graduation and i couldn't believe how it had changed with with the smarter shops, whereas we had one supermarket, Willie Lowe's, one fish and chip shop, one chemist. But I loved the the small quaintness of it, and I'm glad I was there with that time. But then I think, for me, it was the contrast against against London. And then, of course, I then spent my next years working in London with um, PwC as an auditor and trying to pass my exams. So I had that reversal back into London again. And you then, of course, did with starting Boysdale Restaurants, which was an amazing endeavour, Ronald. I started my wine business first after I was thrown out of St Andrews for the third time. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't necessarily going to share that, but yes. But I did manage to get back in. And on my third time, I managed to get back in, uh, having had a psychiatric assessment. 
and I got a medical certificate saying that I was abnormally lazy, and that was how I managed to get back in. But I did have one of my brightest ideas when I was back in London trying to work out what I was going to do for the remaining year before retaking my exams. For the seventh time. And and I. I can't remember. But I, but I had one, I, I had a good idea because I, I thought, well, I'll sell wine because everyone buys wine. Everyone I know drinks wine. So what I've got to do is buy it from source. And I'd noted at St Andrews that only had four wine shops that an identical bottle of wine of the same vintage would sell for maybe about a 50 pence price difference between the four shops. So I thought, if I can just get the wine at the right price and make 50p a bottle, £6 a case, and sell 100 cases, £600 a week, I can make a living. So I went to, pre the internet, the source for information about the world was a big, thick, yellow-covered tome called the Yellow Pages. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I pulled it open, went under Wine Merchant. And what I noticed instantaneously was that not one wine merchant in central London had an advertisement in Yellow Pages. They're all too smart. Some had emboldened entries, but none had an advertisement. So I stuck an ad in, I was still a student, and I took a half-page ad in Yellow Pages, which was then £800. So in today's wow. money, that's a lot of money. That's like about three or four grand. Luckily, it was on three months' credit. I stuck in a big ad, which came out in November 2004, and five, and within three months, I turned over a hundred thousand pounds worth of business. Goodness me! Just giving the telephone number of my mother's dining room and doing back-to-back. Uh, do you, deals. I don't even mean two thousand and five, nineteen ninety-five. Nineteen ninety-five. Yeah, no, sorry, nineteen. <laughs> 1985. 1985. 1985. My God, yes, wrong century, <laughs> wrong decade, wrong everything. And I contacted the companies who had em- emboldened entries and basically started a wine business. And on the back of that, I started a restaurant business called Boysdale, which is focused on Scottish ingredients. Where possible from the West Highlands, we're not from Scotland, but we also select a lot of British ingredients from all over. I think it's the best of British, I would think. It's sort of the best of British with an emphasis on the West Coast of Scotland. Yes. And then you've also got a jazz bar there. And we started live music uh, about 21 years ago. So we started with classic jazz. I like the jazz of the 1930s most. And then we evolved into more bebop and then we took a bit of a soul route. So we're now one of London's with a larger restaurant that we bought in 2010 called Boystore Canary Wharf. We're now one of the... We probably employ more musicians than any other group in of restaurants in London. We have four, four restaurants with live music every night, ranging from punk rock and rock and roll to pop and blues and jazz and reggae. You also then have got a magazine as well. You started on the back of it all. I started a magazine about six years ago, which is great fun and punches above its weight. That's a lot of work, though, because that's a monthly magazine, isn't it? It's quarterly. Quarterly, OK. It's sort of it's a lot of work, but it's not, it's not really that much work, because most... Now, we pay our contributors, who are basically customers... No, you didn't, you didn't pay me. Our real contributors, as our, <laughs> our, our day-to-day <laughs> journalists, as in the professional journalists, <gasps> and political writers and economists, and people who make a living from writing. So do I. <laughs> OK. And, well, we pay those people in Boysdale Pounds, and if we're promoting someone like yourself, which is a promotion of an existing business which benefits from it, then... Oh, which I am now, but I wasn't then. But well done. <laughs> yes, I know, coming round to it. No, but it is. I, I enjoy it. There's quite a lot to read in it, and it, it's interesting, and it's fun contributors. So there's that, and I've always enjoyed the meals that George and I have had in Boysdale. We tend to go to the one in Belgravia, um, in Eccleston Street, which has been always good fun, and I 
We've had the odd party there as well for friends and it's delicious food and it's a fun atmosphere. And I, do you know, it's as we come to the end of an extraordinary year of a pandemic, it's that conversation, laughter, good food, swapping news, which I have sorely missed above all. To start with, you can cope just about, but as it goes on, I think it becomes ever harder. It really does. And I imagine you've furloughed some staff, but that nevertheless doesn't help necessarily supporting some of the business costs as you go on, Ronald. And I know on the back of that, you've begun these rather amazing Zoom meal kits that you've begun through this last year, which I think have begun to really take off, haven't they? I think we're the only people doing this, but I'm not certain of it. I've not found it elsewhere. But we've made our virtual events a little bit more interactive. So our first big virtual event which we think will enter the Guinness Book of Records for the largest burn supper ever curated. We had 1,064 people who consumed a quarter of a tonne of haggis between them across the length and breadth of the British Isles. And they all received whiskey, four-course dinner, and a wonderful Rob Roy cocktail made with Ardbeg malt whiskey from Isla. And it was quite a show because we had... We started with a descendant of Robbie Burns giving the Selkirk grace... We then had Donald McLaren of McLaren from his ancient Highland home in Balquidder playing Piping in the Haggis. Then we had James Cosmo, one of Scotland's best-loved actors of Braveheart, Highlander and Game of Thrones fame, then recite the Ode to the Haggis. We then had some great whisky experts talking to the audience. We then had one of Scotland's greatest young pop stars, Talia Storm, singing Old Lang Syne, more bagpipes, me giving a boring speech. So it was a, an hour and a bit of entertainment. curated entertainment, mm. which you could listen to or not as you wished. And last night we did over a thousand people for our Valentine's night. We did a soul show and we had some major soul acts coming on performing live and a lot of interaction, 600 odd households, most of whom selected to still be on video dancing on the screens with spotlight different people. So it it was just like a party. With Verve Clico Rose, so that's all good fun. So making events more interactive, as we are planning and very excited about doing here at Highclere, when we will be having Highclere gin, which is a magnificent gin, listeners. It really is delicious. It has a nuance of lavender and a lot of spice complexity, as well as being very clean and refreshing and perfect, just simply as a gin and tonic. It also makes wonderful cocktails and has a very good strength for a cocktail, particularly for a martini. But for our event here with you, Fiona, we're going to have delicious cocktails and then some time with you in the library, and you'll describe what's happened in this house with a few references to the other side of this house, which is obviously Downton Abbey. Yes. And then we'll have a wonderful sumptuous dinner together. We'll be tasting stunning Californian wines, giving a nod to Geordie's American forebears. And then we have a master of wine, a famous... British restaurant critic William Sitchwell, the writing family. Author uh, like me, writer. Yes, yeah. <laughs> then we'll be tasting the delicious, herbaceous and wonderful Highclere cigar. I know the, the, we've got two, the Edwardian and the Victorian. The Victorian's been really well received. So that's been quite an interesting development, which we did just before the gin to see if there was a market for Highclere Castle branded lifestyle effectively. And it has been a really interesting journey with our American colleagues and colleagues 
The Highclere Castle gin now, I think it's become one of the most awarded gins in the entire world. It's had the most extraordinary reviews. It did take four years, Ranald, to create and make. And the bottle itself was quite a process to get the right colours so that when it was empty or full, it still reflected the bluey purpley colour. And, and then it was the oats at the end which creamed the gin. We spent nine months actually in this very room tasting Great. gin. <laughs> It was, but you know, I learned so much from it. And Geordie went around all the different factories and gin bottling. We've been to and fro in America in the old days, and we did travel. Really proud of what we have done, and it's been very well received in America. And we've just got a distributor in Malta, and we're beginning to get into Canada and take small steps to keep going forward. But thank you for your support because I know there's a lot of gins in England, but I hope ours makes its own contribution and stands up for bottle and taste. No, obviously, running six bars, I've looked at the gin market, and yours is both very distinctive in its style as well as reassuringly very fine English gin. So it works as it should work, but it also gives a little bit more. So I, I think it's one of the two or three most outstanding gins produced in Britain at the moment. Oh, well, that's really, really kind. It's a great British export, so that's another reason I'm kind of quite proud of it in a really challenging time. So I think it's a good thing to put the flag behind if you like but and I'm quite interested because we've done our virtual cocktail parties now which we started in the very first lockdown last April and with some hilarity and upside down in that we were holding the phones the wrong way up they were all done off our mobile phones and, and then luckily people thought their Facebooks were the wrong way around rather than the few people who bubbled with us here holding the phones the wrong way up we've gone on from there to produce some good virtual cocktail parties and created in fact the largest virtual cocktail party in the world and I know as we travel through the pandemic as I hopefully it begins to to leave our lives I'm sure there'll be calls to do a few virtual summer cocktail parties still to to share when people are less able to travel but combined with other days in which we can really welcome people to Louise Bar and I have come to realise over the last few months what a talented mixologist Louis our, our sommelier our butler here is actually and when I go to your bars now I have a huge amount more respect for the mixologist behind your bar Ronald. Well, I always think of Jeeves in P.G. Woodhouse's one of the wonderful books he's always a good mixologist he knew exactly what to make Bertie if he was hungover in the morning do you remember? Do you know Jeeves and Worcester was filmed here with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie at one point in the early 1990s oh, right. 1993 I didn't, I, I didn't know that I've got to know Hugh a little bit So Ronald I mean obviously you went to Scotland came back set up your restaurants and and you and your wife, Kate, you've got four children now who are university beyond and going through they're the last all stage left. of they're school. All, they're sort of grown up, I suppose. Are you grown up at 21? They range from 21 to 28. Wow. So they're all doing their own things and singing. Ronald was a great performer at university in terms of singing Elvis Presley, as far as I remember. Do any of your boys take after you or girls take no, after you? No, they're all musicians. Ronald has a band. He got to number one in Argentina, number eight in... <laughs> Mexico, <laughs> and he charted a couple of times here. He's had a few million downloads. Angus is a brilliant pianist. You know, Jules thinks he's very good and has had him played. His is artists. Kate um, music- musical? Kate, Kate was pre-musical, but she's just sort of got, obviously got a mental block with it. She's sort of grade eight on the piano. So wow. she So she was very good, yeah. but she just doesn't play anymore. Right. But Angus talked himself by ear. He just with his telephone on his ear, he learnt to play Fats Waller stride piano and plays really very, very well indeed. 
And Randall's a good guitarist and pianist, and Hector's very good at the guitar. And they're all artists and musicians. What fun. It's sort of fun. It's scary, but fun. Quite noisy when they're all at home, I'd imagine. Oh, nice noise, though. I love it. <laughs> it's a good noise. <laughs> yeah, the piano, we've got three pianos in our house, and there's always one on the go. How magical. And then you're back in Scotland for some of the time? Is you, no, we've you sold our house to Scotland. Uh, my brother has a house in South Uist, which is where we're really from, and I'm looking to buy something up there. But ownership becomes less and less important as you grow older, although it's still, it's still a big draw on me because one wants to own things, but you don't really own anything for very long, so... Just spending time in Scotland is pretty good. It is, and you can spend time with friends and you can borrow someone else's house or rent a house, effectively, yes. which is... a house of a size where you can pack one's own family mm-hmm. and a couple of other families in. Isn't that expensive to buy? Obviously, it's quite a lot of money, but it's not... It's really the running... Costs, which The running huge. costs of a house that can sleep 12, 14 people is just so phenomenal and, and, and far greater than the cost of actually... The mortgage, you can get a fixed rate mortgage now for 1.3%. So a million pounds costs 13 grand a year to, to service. Golly. Whereas a, a million pound house in Scotland might cost you 40 or 50 or more thousand a year mm. to run. And then you think you'll make it back by renting it up. Because I did have quite a large house in Scotland. Did you ever come to it? I went to your parents' house by Killin. That's what well, I remember. Well, I bought another house about eight miles from there called Mornish. And that had 14 bedrooms and a bit of land and a bit of lot frontage. So we had a lot. So I did have, I had 10 years of throwing big parties. It's fun for your children. Yeah, it's, it's sort of out of my system now. Maybe, maybe we'll just get a little cottage or a caravan. Caravans are great, so you can move them wherever you want to go. <laughs> my, my father had a caravan. He used to bring it up to... I um, remember your parents' caravan to go to Ampleforth. Yeah, think. God, it embarrassed me so much. So you're going to be doing that to your children? But no, but I, I, don't, I feel differently about it. I like the idea of a motorhome. No, it'd be quite good fun. Now you get a really luxurious motorhome. You just drive where you want to go. Looking forward with the restaurants, Ronald, you've got, obviously, the original one in Eccleston Street. You've got the very large one at Canary Wharf. And then you've got one in Mayfair, I think, haven't you? One in Mayfair and then one in Bishopsgate. The one in Bishopsgate is probably... I haven't quite said this in public domain as yet, but I think it's the oldest restaurant in London. Is it? In as much as... It hasn't been a restaurant for longer than any other restaurant, but the building itself is 17th century. Right. And so I could say it's the oldest building within which there is a restaurant in London because very few buildings survived the Great Fire after the Black Death in 1666. And this was built after the Great Fire, but it was built in 1667. Right. So part of the restaurant's in the original vaulted cellar, which is rather atmospheric. The hospitality and heritage business, both of which we're in, you've got an incredibly old restaurant, Bishopsgate, and we've got quite an old castle sitting behind us here. How have been so challenged by this last year? The normal hustle and bustle, the money coming in and the employment it creates and the supply chains for the food and the drink have just been completely punctured. And I think it's been probably one of the worst business sectors affected by the pandemic. I don't know what you think about that. It's going to be a difficult way back, isn't it? Well, definitely. Well, hospitality is the fourth largest employer in the country, employing some three and a bit million. So far in 2020, there were 650,000 redundancies and more to come. And we're in a particularly vulnerable position because obviously we manufacture on the premises and we also have sufficient space 
within our premises for all our customers to be. So we have the greatest exposure in terms of rent yes. and the greatest exposure in terms of number of people employed. And the British government, maybe in their wisdom, I don't know, because we'll see how this all pans out in 10 years' time, have provided far less support than the European government's and even the American government. Yes. And I have a friend who has a restaurant in Paris and New York. And in both those restaurants, his costs of the pandemic were pretty much covered by the government within eight or nine weeks. In the UK, the only support we've had is furlough, which assists staff, but doesn't assist a restaurant business with its other costs, which aren't very significant. And we had the Sybil loans, which were distributed by the British bank to conventional banks and were only awarded on strict banking covenants and terms, which really meant that if you didn't have a business that was in a position to borrow, i.e. have one and a half times cover within your accounts prior to COVID, one and a half times the interest and the capital repayment, you couldn't borrow the money. And obviously, businesses that didn't require to borrow money weren't necessarily in that position. They might be investing in expansion or whatever. So it it meant that hundreds of thousands of businesses were denied the ability to get a civil loan and are pretty much standalone. So it is very difficult for hospitality. I think maybe the government just feels that, that they don't really mind about these businesses and they'll let them go under in the hope that, you know, like burning the heather, that it'll grow back well. But it's not a very considerate way of approaching such it's a not large a, part of the economy. It's not a very good The other thing is that given the amount of redundancies going on, the hospitality business often picked up those who had the least money, who offered them the least part-time employment to help them and their families. So I know that when we can open, we can offer bits and pieces of part-time employment to those who perhaps most need it, whereas those people who are in the public sector whose salaries and pensions are being paid anyway are in a less needy position. So it has been an interesting approach. And like you, the furlough has been much appreciated. But at the end of the furlough, the businesses may not be there. So it could be an extended redundancy. Most businesses I've talked to, from the board of directors down, there have been quite big salary cuts. There are 38,000 people in the public sector who earn over 100,000. I don't think there have been any redundancies or any salary cuts. If you're employed by the taxpayer... You're pretty well looked after. Obviously, a lot of the public sector is facing this pandemic and are valiant and wonderful people, but there are a lot of people in the public sector are not and arguably have had rather less to do than they would do normally. But there'd be no there'd be no cuts made in that area. And another small point is that within the restaurant business, all our front-of-house staff are paid by a combination of salary and service charge. And service charge is very much a part of their salary. So they have a minimum wage and then they might earn two, three, four, five, up to £10 an hour for senior management from the service charge, which is essentially 10% of our turnover, which is all distributed to staff. So the government hasn't recognised the service charge as salary, although it's very much what they live on, and it's somewhere between 20 and 40% of their salary. It hasn't recognised that as salary. So really, most people in this hospitality are getting 80% of minimum wage. So that's 3 million people really being done down by the government which is, I don't like using the word unfair, but it's, it doesn't seem correct when you consider how the public sector has been treated. I think a lot is going to come out in the next five years, and I would just hope that looking forwards, if there were other challenging years such as we've had, and may they not be so deeply challenging, there can be a plan and a strategy which is then thought about in advance to be rolled out. Well, what I've put adjusted. forward to government as a commensurate 
to trade scheme is that the VAT is reduced on alcohol as well as food in restaurants from 20 to 5 percent and that does proportionally give a kickback of funding back into hospitality but currently in their wisdom the the reduction of that was only on food and 64 percent of all wet all pubs in this country are wet led so if you're a wet led business booze led business pretty important for a community for less affluent communities it's the only way that people come out and socialize yes and for an older part of that community who don't find a refuge in social media, this is their, their way of existing. Well, beating heart is like on Coronation Street in EastEnders, the pub's um, the heart of the And the, they've TV had programme. zero support, not even on the yeah. VAT, which is... But, but VAT is quite a simple way of doing it, because there are no middlemen, no commissions, mm. no bureaucracy. It's a straightforward cut, and it's proportionate to what you trade, so that it could repair balance sheets quite well in 12 months it could do and i think it would be better if such a strategy were laid out for a year for 12 months rather than this short-term flip from one thing to another and the uncertainty means that everybody falls over themselves to take advantage of something rather than lays out a plan and strategy for somewhat longer well it must be puritanical zeal that made those in power think that wet-led businesses were not worthy of support i can think of no reason for it they selectively decided these businesses don't deserve support well, they and they're very important businesses. Everything can be abused from a steering wheel to a knife, but no, these, no, these communities thrive on having the ability to meet in traditional pubs. So, Randall, I, when I met you at university, you were playing the Qadar and singing Elvis Presley and then you've gone into the drink and then the food business, but are those three equally weighted as drivers in your life or is there any, any part of it which you prefer one to another? Well, I managed to discover that Elvis, who I've always felt a great affinity for, um, is actually a distant relationship. So I do have a kinship with the king through his grandmother, Mary MacDowell. But beyond that, if you take a venue like Ronnie Scott's, which is probably one of the greatest jazz clubs in the world, if you took the music out of Ronnie Scott's, you wouldn't be left with a restaurant. With Boysdale, if you took the music out of Boysdale, you'd still have a restaurant. And we do now play vinyl vintage records in all our businesses, so we can have great music. So I suppose the food, the ambience, and if without live music we played just vinyl records, we'd still be very much Boysdale. But the music does drive me. It, it is very exciting. And how do you see? Are you going to try to open one restaurant at a time as you can or you're just going to take it step by step, Ronald? Step by step. Mm. The balls are spinning less quickly than they were so I can actually see them move and we're beginning to make some sense of how to go forward. And have any of them got some outside space? Presumably the one in Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf has a 65-metre terrace Belgravia, we have a cigar terrace and we're building another terrace at the front and we're expanding the pavement there. Bishopsgate has a small cigar terrace and Mayfair has a small cigar terrace. And terraces are all the thing, although the British weather makes isn't it interesting. The, isn't, isn't the best. But, I know um, we, we're doing takeaway food and takeaway picnics, which is always interesting until it rains. But I think we're eternally optimistic, which I think we have to be living in this extraordinary country. If you're looking ahead, what is your hope for the restaurants and how you're going to go forward in the next couple of years? It's been quite an interesting period of contemplation and relaxation, albeit with the pressures of work. And I find myself working more hours than I did even in London because there's less 
to distract you and you can't justify a long lunch or endless entertaining dinners so one's at home working harder I'm pretty relaxed about it I just find I find a path through it all and money isn't everything and what I particularly found after the first lockdown last year was coming back on the floor in the restaurant for the first time in 22 years working lunch and dinner five days a week I really enjoyed the heart of what I do, which is try to make people happy and create a lovely experience. So I'm I'm sort of quite happy with the idea of just working in my business and quite how it unfolds that manifests itself. I've got less desire to roll out dozens more restaurants. I did start Floridita as well with Terence Conran, and we rolled out a few of those. We opened in Moscow, Dublin and Madrid. I have been courted over the last few months by some restaurant groups in America looking at doing Vegas and stuff, but I'm not I'm not that interested in it, really. I just quite like doing what I'm doing, but I don't know exactly what that'll be. After the last lockdown, the first lockdown, they didn't allow any music to be performed for a month and a half, which is pretty crazy, because obviously a pianist not singing is not creating any issues of aerosol effect. But despite my best efforts, I wasn't able to get the public authorities to allow us to have music. So for us, the reopening is when they allow us to have music performed again and obviously the festivals won't be going ahead early they won't be i mean we've got a we're going to have mozart in the gardens to i want to bring out some young musicians from the royal college of music in london to perform on the lawns outside because there's enough space if it rains we can put up gazebos or something like that and at the History Festival last year, which we did in October, that was quite fun because we, we were allowed to have somebody performing outside in a gazebo again. So I had, the, I had a wonderful young jazz singer. And again, there was a space issue which we were able to overcome by being outside. But it was very important because they had no money. They also had no support from furlough. And for all the years of practice and all the pleasure they have given over lockdown and how they've tried to help, they they had no financial help at all. So I was trying to think, I know that I've got to this Saturday, Sunday in June with some Royal College of Music, student, music students, and I was trying to think if I could have a regular programme, actually, Randall, to support and pay and say thank you to some of the young musicians who need to get out there and be seen and to play and to have that interaction with an audience again. What works quite well is streaming, because a lot of older musicians as well, and we employ several thousand musicians a year. Some of them have been doing quite well with streaming, even if they're not household names or even well-known. They they still have a little little coterie of an audience who give them a few hundred pounds a week. But others have had to take jobs with Amazon and things like that. Yes. Well, Mm. you do what you have to do to get by and you just, you know that it's not going to be like this forever. No. But Randall, let's end on an upbeat note. So what's your your dream in the next year? What do you want to do most of all? Go on holiday. No, I don't see any urgent requirement for a holiday. And I feel I've travelled enough. I'd just like to continue doing what I'm doing and I don't really decide what I'm going to do till I wake up in the morning but I normally get my teeth into something and then continue with it. Some of them slightly self-serving things I enjoy doing and some of the things I need to do like bits of paperwork and things. That's not very conclusive, is it? And I'm also writing music. I've, I've written two great songs I'm very happy with. The stage of the writing, I'm 
singing them and I'm only writing on the guitar but I'm transposing onto piano and I'm very happy with these tunes so that's and I'm also writing various articles and short stories and working at our business so I'm, I'm quite happy in a funny sort of way How fantastic Randall thank you so much for coming today and for joining me and I just wish you all the best and I look forward to your restaurants being open and the music being played again and the sound of voices singing and laughter and you'll be back on the floor Yeah I'm sort of um, feel that I ought to be offered something for my desert island at this point (laughs) (laughs) hello this is Lady Carnarvon and just to say please do subscribe to this podcast then you can be first on the list every time it comes out